And we're live. Um, hello, welcome to um, another episode of The Alternative View here on Raw 1251am. Um, obviously, if you're listening to us on any of our on-demand services on Mixcloud, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, all of them, obviously you won't know we were slightly delayed in doing this live stream. That is the sort of bug of watching on-demand is that when people normally say, oh, we're running late, but you don't normally know. And as you can see, as, as you can quite clearly see right now, Again, if you're listening, my camera just dipped there for a second. Technical gremlins have been slightly affecting us today, but the show must go on. That is that is the life, really. But thanks again to everyone who's been watching us over the last few weeks and again into this week. Um, just really from us, really, in terms of what's going to be happening. Um, a couple of people messaged me after last week's show just asking, really, what's happening this term? Um, as I said, we are currently running for the first four weeks of term on this 1 till 2 p.m., Wednesday live stream coming out on the Raw, Mixed Clouds, as well as all of our other Mixed Clouds and our Spotify, our five o'clock Saturday evening. It is a little bit weird at the moment owing to coronavirus. I do hope that I will get back into the studio at some point soon where I can play around with all of the music and all of the things that we have been planning for this term, all of the things like the news in 60 seconds, the segments. I, ha I had ideas of music and stuff I could do with it in my head. And at the moment, sadly, capacity is a little more limited, but we'll be there. We will be there. And anyway, obviously, it's great to obviously have people watching us and listening to us again today. And of course, it's even better if people do get involved. Like Joe Salmon here, who, for the benefit of our audio listeners, has referred to me as not just his friend, but also the producer here at The Alternative View. And of course, as part of my production this week, it's up to me to come up with a question. I want to hear what you guys are thinking. And so this is the question that we want to be getting you guys to be discussing throughout the show today, which is, if you had to self-isolate, do you think your university would provide you with sufficient support? Now, there's been a lot of debate over the last week in terms of self-isolation, in terms of the way that universities are treating students and whether they're making significant provisions. We'll come to this at the end of the show. But this is the question that is up for discussion today. If you are having to self-isolate, do you think your university will provide you with sufficient support? Please comment throughout the show. Get involved in all the other topics as well. You can do so both on our Facebook page and on our Twitter as well. Really, really important that you do get involved. But of course, the show is not just all about me. You would get bored of seeing my face if you're watching this or just hearing me for an entire hour if you're listening. So, of course, I need to bring some people in so that us begin. For the first time this term, I'd like to welcome Ollie Cranham Young. Hello, how are you Hello. doing? I'm good, thank you. It's good to be on again after last year. I really enjoyed it, yeah. so I'm looking forward to being on again a few times is, this year. Yeah, it's great to have you on, mate. You're rather a perennial figure. I think our most featured what? person last term. So I think it's only just that we bring you back on. It, it is an accolade. You are really bringing, bringing yourself to the alternative view. Um, Obviously, a lot's happened since we've last seen you. I'm, I'm obviously, yeah. I, I, I don't want you to expunge all of your personal life onto us, but <laughs> I, 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 that would be too rude of me. But in terms of how you've been, how, how have you been? Um, okay, not too bad. I mean, I just really worked all summer. I did a plan on travelling. Um, I came to visit Australia and Japan, see family there, but that didn't really come to fruition because of coronavirus. So I just spent the summer working instead, which is what not why I originally anticipated, but here we are. It's not just me that um, wasn't able to travel this year, I suppose. 
Yeah, your bank account is probably celebrating with that extra bit of cash in there, yeah, definitely. I, I, I did want to go to Budapest this summer. There's a festival I really wanted Classic to go back to. I know. I, I, do, I do love Budapest. From just my few days there interrailing, I don't think I'd love the place as much. And oh, I've been to yeah. Blackpool. Like, <laughs> that's an accolade. But anyway, yeah. I not just Ollie joining us today. It is, of course, as I described it in our Freshers Week special, it is my guiding light here at Royal 1251 AM. It is, of course, our head of news, Enoch Makungu. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cam. Now, um, obviously, it's great to have you back on today. And you are, of course, the host of Insight on Raw as well, our department's main news show. But that's not the only thing you're doing at the moment. Obviously, we have an election coming up in the United States next month. Yeah. So what what is I, I hear that you have a show that you, you started on there. Oh, yeah. We start. I mean, what a unique idea for you to start an election focused podcast. But Raw News has now started their own. Hey, oh, hi, hi, Joe. Joe just said hi in the comment. Um, Raw News has started its own election focused podcast, Elephants Donkeys, which tries to find the more undercovered stories of the US election rather than the sort of big headline stories about the debates and that kind of thing. Sort of while our build up to our big US special events, basically, for the actual election. Of course, and you talk about the US election, obviously, that Raw is going to be um, doing some work with the US election and doing its own broadcast. If anyone's interested in taking part, how, how, how do they take part? Well, well, you're actually in luck because we're having a meeting today at four. So if you go to the Raw News page, you can find go to our events, you'll see the Raw News general election planning meeting. Um, click going on that event, you'll find a Teams meeting in there, join the Microsoft Teams team and have a meeting at four and we'll discuss all the ways to get involved. Brilliant. And of course, if you are watching this on demand and you are obviously a few days in advance, still message Enoch if you do want to get involved. It will be yeah, absolutely fantastic to see as many people taking part in the US election. I must say, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a... I, I don't know how you can quite condense it into one night at the moment. Because obviously every other US election, there was this degree of certainty that we'd have the, ele we'd have the result by six, seven o'clock the morning yeah. after. And we could go to the Dirty Duck and have a pint or probably more appropriately a coffee to get through it. Yeah. No, it's not more appropriate. Pint. Yeah. <laughs> We're drinking all night, Cam. That's that's the one guarantee yeah. I can I don't know. I, 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 alcohol. Does alcohol have caffeine in? Is that just me who's heard that? Or... Maybe, I don't think it does. Maybe some do. No. I mean, it's a big tent. Alcohol. To find no. Absolutely. You see that this is the thing. We're not just bringing alternative views politically as well, but we're also bringing our alternative views on alcohol consumption as well. Of course, I don't want to be quoting non-scientific facts. That is not my job. But as we go on, of course, a lot has been happening this week. And so what I really want to reflect on now is the last week. And yeah, quite a lot's happened. And to really try and condense that into 60 seconds is something almost impossible so i'm gonna do it so um enoch has kindly provided me a 60 second time again when we're back in the studio i will have some visuals it'll be working so enoch if you can get the camera held up against the computer and again okay. if you are listening to us right now please set your own 60 second timer prove me wrong if i if i say i do it here and i am wrong prove me wrong so enoch are we ready to go uh, yes, yes, we are. So okay, so in line, three, three, two, two one. 
Yeah, Coronavirus cases continue to rise across the UK. Seven-day average of 14,973 cases. Hospitalizations now reached the highest level since March, and there's been 143 recorded daily deaths yesterday. That is the highest since June. Um, there's a new three-tier restriction system across England. Most of the countries on medium, which is the current restrictions rule of six and the like. Um, high system, most places currently on local lockdown. This household mixing has been banned indoors. And the very high system, currently covering Liverpool, but apparently extended to Greater Manchester and to Lancashire as well. That covers all household mixing be banned and pubs and bars that aren't serving dominantly food also being closed. Uh, circuit breakers have been introduced in Northern Ireland and Scotland as well. Labour and the Liberal Democrats are called for the same to be now introduced in England. And of course, that on the back of the government and SAGE advising that should be the case. And Donald Trump is back on the campaign trail. He said that he's immune from coronavirus. And so, again, he went on the Florida rally. Um, no social distancing and mask. Biden, the complete opposite. He's targeting those LZ voters. He says he'd been let down by Trump. And finally, Apple have released the new range of iPhones with 5G as well. Really looking forward to that. And that is the news in 60 seconds this week. That was you know what? astonishing. <laughs> God. You see, I, I once performed Modern Major General on stage. And that, that was where I get it from. Because the thing with that song is you have to talk about it so, so fast. And so it was extremely, extremely tough. Yeah. And again, Joe, Joe Salmon has left a thread. I did do this in 60 seconds. Joe Salmon has said, if I don't condense this into 60 seconds, that I'm going to go into the wood chipper. Well, Joe, I did do it in 60 seconds. So you can save that wood chipper just for now, my friend. But... Of course, it's not just the news in 60 seconds that's the most important thing. I've got to ask each of you if there's any story that's particularly gripped you over the last week. Um, so, Enoch, let's come to you first. What has been the story that's grabbed your attention most over the last week? Oh, well, this stretch came out yesterday. Um, CNN report. A Dutch woman dies of catching coronavirus twice. Um, the first reported reinfection death. And now we've been getting reports that coronavirus can, in fact, reinfect you sort of basically since March, essentially. But this is the first time we've seen someone get coronavirus, get it, you know, recover, get it again, and now unfortunately die. Um, she was um, she was eighty nine years old. So she was she was suffering from a type of bone marrow cancer called well, Wadenstrom's micro. I can't pronounce that, but it's a very scientific word. I'm not going to waste your time pronouncing it. Um, but she, she was obviously very several high risk groups. But it's very devastating to hear that not only can you you can coronavirus can now you can survive it once, and yet second time around you may not. No, absolutely. Um, herd immunity has been a word that's been thrown around a lot. And the Great Barrington Declaration group of scientists last week, the likes of Professor Sinatra Gupta and Carl Hennigan, all came out uh, in favour of a more herd immunity approach. But obviously, with these three infections, now obviously we do need to acknowledge that the 89-year-old woman who sadly died was in many high-risk categories. So do you think that this sort of reduces the idea of herd immunity, that it makes it less likely or do you think it's an idea that's still going to be flown around especially as the science now is a lot more contested i think what I mean, the main question is really raised is is there a herd immunity if you can get reaffected if you can get reinfected with coronavirus well that's that raises so many questions about you know what what's actually going on inside the bodies where our immune system and how it works if it was like chickenpox now we could see like sort of just yesterday there herd immunity would be a valid strategy, but now we need to ask very serious questions about whether or not herd immunity is either achievable in a realistic amount of time, or whether or not vaccine even work. Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that has been the big debate really raging since March, and of course, still developing. Ollie, I want to come to you next. Yeah. What has been the big story for you then over the last week that has grabbed you? 
Um, well, I think I'm just going to like stray away from coronavirus-related um, news, but I think this came out this morning and it, it just angered me. And basically, it is about HS2, and apparently the first phase between London and Birmingham has gone over budget again. I think it's for about the third or fourth time now, and apparently an extra 800 million is now needed. But the reasons for it are quite odd. I mean, the first one's that more asbestos has been discovered, but the second one is the reason for this additional funding is because of the complexities of bringing the railway into a new hub station at Euston. I can't quite understand why they didn't anticipate that prior to um, to prior to this week, because, I mean, you know, the, the, the location where H2 is going to go has been, you know, common knowledge for quite a while now, so I don't understand why that's suddenly become a big issue. But, I mean, it just kind of reinforces my opposition to it. I mean, earlier in the year, it was, it was going to cost about $98 billion and it looks like it's going to go up again and i just it just annoys me because i mean the first stretch isn't going to be available for another 10 years at the, at the earliest and that's only to birmingham it's not actually going to reach the north i mean we talk about leveling up the north and building back better and all of that but that's not actually if it, if you know if work begins now at a faster rate that's not going to come to fruition for another two decades at least and it just oh, it hates to angers me and this story this morning has just kind of made me more angry again I have seen many of your concerns about HS2 over time, it must be said. Um, obviously, uh, HS2 is interesting. The government seems to now have been throwing all their support behind it. They gave the yeah. go-ahead for it in the start of the year. And with all of these budget overruns happening, do you think there's a chance that the government may still bring the issue back on the table? Or do you think that something else needs to be done to remove HS2 and for it not to go ahead? I unfortunately think that we're too far down the line now i mean a lot of the infrastructure is in place so i as much as i you know continue to criticize i i don't actually foresee a situation in which the government now roads back on it and decides not to go ahead with it i mean the cost i mean i talk about the cost today of it being an extra extra 800 million which is probably pennies in the grand scheme of things time which caters to actually cost but it's, it's not just that i do it's the environmental concerns i mean we see the, the i'm sure you will see the banners up in leamington in town regarding the environmental problems with it as well and i just think it is i'm getting angry about it but i, I don't think anything's going to change i think we're too far down the line now and it's just frustrating because it's just a colossal waste of taxpayers money hmm. well that of course that is a debate that will continue to rage with hs2 um i want to go on to something else now this is something that was actually released in the last hour um 12 o'clock today ipsos mori released a poll on scottish independence and it put the highest ever polled figure for scottish in favor of scottish independence 58 percent now, the union has been seen to be increasingly unstable. A lot of questions have been raised about it throughout the year. But polls in the past have given a narrow lead to independence. But 58% is higher than the amount of people that voted against independence in 2014. And with the SNP, as they are really pushing forward for independence at the moment, there is really quite an interesting concern that if they do get that majority next year, the tide is very much flowing for a second referendum so i want to get each of my guests opinion on this quickly so ollie i'll come to you first quickly yeah. what how monumental is this poll how much does this change um i don't think the poll itself i mean it will exacerbate a lot of panic on twitter but i feel i feel like it's just kind of proven what we've kind of known for a while to be the case that independence and support for the SNP is rising and i feel like if they get a majority in the scottish parliament elections which i think are next may i feel like it's going to be really difficult for the government to keep on kind of just prevent ignoring them i mean it's 
it's kind of it doesn't really surprise me when I saw it this morning because I thought you know what that's kind of kind of reinforces and you know um, allows what well, what we've all thought for a while to be true. I just fifty eight percent is quite you know stark and I just what shocks me though is like the handling of coronavirus in Scotland hasn't been amazing yet. Nothing ever comes like a detriment to Nicholas Sturgeon's own personal approval ratings. They just continue to rise. No matter what she does, and I find that extraordinary, but now I feel like a second independence referendum is probably inevitable. Okay, Enoch, I want to come to you now on the same thing, because Ollie's right, Nicola Sturgeon hasn't had maybe the best pandemic. The cases are growing faster in Scotland than perhaps in many parts of the UK at the moment. And Nicola Sturgeon has been immune from a lot of the criticism faced by the UK government. So do you think that this is all contributing to independence in a second referendum being almost certain. I yeah, I think Ollie's right here. We shouldn't you shouldn't get too worked about one poll, but I think the signs are pointing in this direction for a long time. Scotland's gonna leave the union sooner rather than later unless something major changes and the government takes a major new stance of winning them back. I think Nicola Sturgeon had the great advantage that um, no matter how upset people in Scotland may feel towards her, they seem to hate Boris Johnson more. So he tends to, he soaks up a lot of the blame for everything she's going wrong. Um, you can see that with the A-level scandal where Scotland had a horrific mistake, but they had, to, because, you know, because the UK came right afterwards, they were able to hide behind Boris Johnson and, you know, um, Gavin Williamson. Um, but I, yeah, I, I'm not, I don't look forward to the day Scotland needs, but I don't see a way of avoiding it now. Hmm. It's certainly an interesting dynamic that I think we'll have to keep following over the next few years, definitely. And Joe Salmon, thanks for getting involved throughout the show. Um, he has he has stated that we should let Scotland be free. Peaceful secession is the only real option. So quite a lot there to discuss and unpack. Well, thanks very much for our review of the week there. Um, it's time for us to now move on to our first real main talking point of today's show. And that is looking at the state of our nation and particularly the story involving Darren Grimes. Now, Darren Grimes, if you don't know who he is, is a Conservative commentator, and he has been involved in much of the party throughout the last few years. He was a prominent figure throughout the um, Brexit referendum, and he set up a new channel this year called Reasons UK, um, very much focusing on that more Conservative position. And early in the year, in June, he conducted an interview with historian David Starkey, into which David Starkey fell into fell into strife for his use of the words damn blacks which led to him um eventually being heavily criticized on twitter and losing many of his fellowships that he had gained over time now obviously david starkey took a lot of personal hit for that and darren grimes himself said afterwards that he felt that through his sort of adoration that had been built up of starkey over the years of course i can't remember an A-level history lesson doing Tudors where I don't think I watched Starkey. And he said that was what stopped him from criticising Starkey on air at the time, and he apologised for that. But last week, Darren Grimes received a letter from the Metropolitan Police saying that he needed to be interviewed under caution under the Public Order Act for inciting racial hatred linked to that interview. Now, again, the decision was almost immediately condemned by the Free Speech Union, there by Toby Young, who said it was a potential affront to freedom of expression and freedom in the press. Similarly, cross-party MPs also said this, so the former Chancellor Sajid Javid and the former leader of the Liberal Democrats, Tim Farron, both came out against this. Um, although Labour MP, the Shadow Justice Minister, Carl Turner, later stated in a tweet that freedom of speech does not give the right 
to generally offend. Now, that tweet was later deleted. So, obviously, the, there's been a lot of debate over Starkey and the comments that he made, and it takes place within this real debate developing over this year on cancel culture. So, I want to, that is some, maybe an issue to put to one side, but certainly on Darren Grimes' situation, Enoch, I want to come to you first, because, obviously, as the head of news here at Raw, you interview a lot of people that you hear a lot of opinions do you think if someone says a controversial opinion like the one that starkey gave that the journalist the person interviewing should face consequences for that i i think the use of the phrase face consequences that's where i think i think difficulty lies for me i think it's absolutely unacceptable that anyone reported down grimes to police over what was clearly the mistake of someone who's inexperienced, inexperienced, but yeah, probably should have been doing the interview themselves. Absolutely unacceptable. I think it's absolutely right as journalists that we face criticism that people can say, hey, I didn't think you did a very good job of this, this and certain, certain things. I think having watched the interview, he didn't do a good enough job pushing back what Darren Grimes said. Even if he, you know, just like to, even as an interview, you should always push back on things and try and get things to be expanded on. And you just sort of let, um, you just sort of let Darren Starkey, so sort of, David Starkey keep talking. I ain't mixing their names up. Um, I, I, so I, I, when you say the word consequences, I think he should lose his job over it, but I think he should be absolutely unacceptable. I think that's unacceptable what's happening to police here. So in terms of those consequences, then we'll return to the matter of the police in a bit. But what, what do you think should be the case with Starkey? What do you think, sorry, with um, Darren Grimes even, what do you think would be a sort of acceptable resolution there? Do you think him making that apology and saying that he needs to learn is enough or do you think that perhaps there should be more that comes from that i i don't see rules i think honestly just a real commitment saying sorry i made a mistake there next time we'll do better that's i think all we really need i, I do i think sometimes we can get too caught up in these incident outrages and we will people get all very frustrated and they don't accept apologies as they are but i think especially i think darren Grimes has a he has a really unfortunate situation of being fairly unpopular to vast ways internet for his stance on the you know, Brexit and his campaigning on Brexit. And then, you, uh, so putting that aside, I think his apology should have been accepted and we really should have moved on. I think if anyone should deserve to be criticised heavily, it was David Starkey for making these comments. And he has had formed for making similar comments in the past. Okay, certainly. Ollie, if I can come to you next on really that yeah. same point, which is yeah. obviously that there is, obviously David Starkey, there's a lot of debate surrounding what he said. And there'll be obviously a lot of debate on that. But with regards to Darren Grimes, is it is it less there more consensus that what's happening with him here is not right? That whatever David Starkey said, that yeah. that's the responsibility for David Starkey and is for Darren Grimes, that well, he needs he should be able to interview people who do hold these controversial opinions. Yeah, no, I agree with what Enoch just said about how the police are almost, they're investigating, well, not almost, but they are, they're investigating the wrong person here. It's like David Stiker was the one who made the disgusting and horrible comments. And, you know, for the record, we should probably acknowledge that they were disgusting what he said about slavery. But I think, I think it's a bit of a slippery slope because where are we drawing the line? Are we going to now say that, you, like, in every interview, if someone doesn't challenge something which, you know, is disgusting, I mean, what he said was awful, but. Again, it's like Darren Grimes is a very young, inexperienced um, interviewer, and I don't. I'm not sure whether that is still a justification for it, but I just think if you're not, then not allowed to interview anybody, which perhaps mm, potentially might say something which is deemed, you know, abhorrent. Then I just think 
what, why, why do we draw the line? I mean, you could probably find like many examples over the past couple of years in which interviewers have interviewed people and they've said horrible, disgusting things. There's no equivocation about that. But then nothing, no special, no, nothing has come of it from the police. So I feel like, so why is this particular case getting special coverage? So, I mean, yeah, I, I agree with Enoch really on this. I think that there was talk is the one that the police needs to be investigating, not Darren Grimes. Well, it's important to um, make the point that um, he has been um, investigated by Good. and David Starkey, David Starkey even has had um, a similar thing to Darren Grimes. Um, right. I just want to be really on the point of council culture. Yeah. Because this has obviously been something that has become more of a debate yeah. over the last year. And people have said it's always been a proxy to silence people and silence potential opinions. Do you think that with this debate arising over the last year, that that has potentially led to this situation where Darren Grimes is now getting this investigation into him by the police? Or do you think it's something that would likely have happened anyway? No, I don't think it would have happened anyway. And I think you're right. So that is probably part of this new cancel culture kind of era that we're beginning to live through. I don't think it's very helpful either because I think, you know, the way that you kind of disprove and kind of disregard people with abhorrent views in my opinion is to let them have them but then when they've said what they've got to say you tell them why they're wrong and why they what they think is like disgusting like and if, if you just don't like if people aren't given a platform and it's difficult where we draw the line because obviously some people we are probably all willing to give a platform to but i feel like it's like with conspiracy theorists people like that i feel like they need to be listened to and then challenged because if no one ever challenges them then they kind of just kind of they just say what they believe and without any consequences and that i think can be more detrimental because with no one challenging it some people would just you know believe them and i, I feel like it's very important that people's views are here but then at the same time they're kind of disregarded and disputed okay absolutely um, Judy Wilkinson has just um commented i'm just going to bring this comment up quickly and he's commented that slippery slope arguments are inherently weak i don't know if either enoch or ollie has anything to say on that i think it's it's a fair it's a fair cop you know hmm. slippery slopes right it's, it's a slippery slope slippery slope argument you start making one and then suddenly you're finding making hundreds of slippery slope arguments about absolute nonsense that go absolutely nowhere and then you end up just being bad at arguing so i think yeah jude wilkerson you are you are right there hmm. I, I i guess there's something we could go from that which is in terms of if there is a line to be drawn, where is that line to be drawn? That's what I was trying to say. That's mm. what I was trying yeah. to articulate, yeah. I mean, because, maybe just not use the word slippery slope then. I mean... Yeah, I because obviously I think with... Well, the things the government obviously are very clear, the freedom of speech is allowed, it's within the law, but provided that you don't um, incite violence or um, I believe... I believe it's in the inciting violence or what is classed as hate speech. So yeah. obviously that is something in the case of David Starkey and Darren Grimes, it'll be interesting to see how that develops and where that is interpreted legally. But on another point, obviously it's a central point of democracy to have freedom of expression and freedom of the press. And so I guess as an extension really from that, do you think that this, judgment from the Metropolitan Police to investigate Darren Grimes is potentially impeding on that. And what do you think should be done potentially if you do think that's the case? Again, where should that line be drawn so that we can ensure we have a free press and free expression 
without potentially spreading hate speech. Um, Enoch, if I can come to you first on that point. Well, I think that's sort of the great discussion. So as they said, where do you draw a line? But also, most crucially, who gets to draw that line? Um, I don't know if I would trust not just this government, but any government to be like, okay, this is what's acceptable for people to say. Anything outside of that isn't, you know, sort of allowed. I, I think. Um, I think at the end of the day, you have to look. People have to be able to make up their mind for themselves. But I think that does leave us vulnerable as a society. You know, there's no form of recourse for people who are abusive, people who are racist, and that kind of thing. But I would say if we we're probably better off as a society as a whole if people are allowed to say those things. It allows us for other freedoms. Okay. Um. Joe Salmon has just commented. I want to get your opinion on this quickly, Enoch, because kind of linked to that idea we talk about the slippery slopes of where the line can be drawn. Um, so Joe Salmon has just said that slippery slopes aren't weak when you're using something as serious as government force. Allowing a state to have the power to jail you for offensive speech is entirely subjective to whatever the state finds convenient. And I guess that kind of links to what you were saying about that obviously you feel like you can't necessarily trust whatever the line is to draw it. And Jude Wilkinson has also just commented, asking that does hate speech really exist? Who defines what counts? as hate speech. So I, I guess in relation to that, if you are going to have freedom of the press and freedom of expression and you're going to draw the line, is there any sort of criteria you think there should be? Or do you think there needs to be some work to develop some sort of consensus on that? I think as you know, really as anything else in society, that's why we have that's why we have you know big groups like Parliament. We need to work to build consensus of many different viewpoints and come together to form something that makes sense for everyone. Um, I do think hate speech. I do think hate speech exists. I do. Um, you know, I think I don't like to talk about. It, but I'm really into some of it myself. I just think you know there needs to be a wider discussion in society about what that means and whether or not we want, want to pro prosecute at all. Okay, Ollie, if I can come to yeah. you now, both on the both on really the point of drawing the line in terms of getting freedom of speech and freedom of expression part of a democracy, but also drawing that line in terms of okay what is acceptable who gets to define what can be said and maybe even should it be right that certain groups get to define what should be said where do you where do you sit with that well i mean that's what i was saying previously it, it is difficult because you know we're all it's, it is subjective and every one of us is probably going to have a slightly you know different kind of position of where we would draw the line but i mean to try and say that hate speech doesn't exist i think it's a bit farcical it clearly does and I mean, you know, people have the right to say what they want, but I feel like, and obviously people do have the right, you know, to say things you know, that the other people disagree with vehemently, that's, that's fine. But I feel like, you know, there is a point in which it's harmful to others, whether it's through threats of violence or, you know, things like that. I feel like, you know, I think, you know, a line can be drawn. It's difficult where it is, but that isn't to say that a line doesn't exist because, you know, it does. Okay. There's a lot we can certainly discuss on freedom of expression, freedom of press within democracy. But just one last thing, and going back to Darren Grimes specifically. Now, he was previously investigated by the Metropolitan Police over his role in accepting donations from Vote Leave during the referendum. Um, he's argued that he has been targeted again by the Met Police, that it's been a disproportionate response to him specifically, and that this is just a waste of taxpayers' money. And he's also, an argument so called has been going around as well on Twitter, for example, that why, in a similar vein, why wasn't the Sky News journalist who interviewed Wiley when he made anti-Semitic comments earlier on in the year not prosecuted in a similar way to Darren Grimes? So just on that point, really, to both of you quickly, um, Enoch, if I can come to you first again, what do you think to that 
statement from Grimes that he's been unfairly targeted? I, I think, I will say, I do think he's been unfairly targeted, not by the Met, not Metropolitan Police, but whoever reported him. I think that was, you know, way too far. Um, I, I, yeah, I think he should be saying exactly the next all journalists are, that when we report on something, you're not suddenly implicated in that thing and suddenly become, we have to make a clear distinction between what the interviewer thinks and what the, you know, interviewee is doing. Like, otherwise, we can never speak to people like Wiley or like, you know, Dan, um, David Starkey, who have these views and have such a personal importance that they need to be interviewed. Um, but I don't, I don't think he's been targeted by Metropolitan Police. I think he was investigated over Brexit and cleared, and now he's, I think, I don't know exactly what happened here, but I do believe he's not being charged any further. I think that's correct. Um, he's, well, he is, in the current situation, he's been told to um, attend an interview on precaution, but will be arrested if he doesn't. So he, he he's claiming that he is, effectively, he's got no choice here. He's been offered, well, effectively, I can go and I can have, this interview but he's saying no i don't have that i have to do it so for him it's almost being arrested again yeah i i, I think I, I i do find that in as very dubious but i think that's a larger comment on the power of the police in the society and that's a whole different discussion really i don't think they're doing that because they have a deep abiding hatred of darren grimes at the very top of the met no certainly ollie i'm just going to come to you yeah. again but whilst we do that joe salmon has just commented again and he has said that the journalist who did interview wiley did push back on his comments entirely. Now, obviously, Darren Grimes didn't do it at the time, but he did no. it obviously later and made his own apology for that. So do you think that perhaps there's a distinction there that maybe that's why Darren Grimes is having action taken against him? Or is it just a sense that he's feeling unfairly targeted and that this is an affront to free press and free expression in our democracy? Yeah, I mean, this is really, I mean, within the last year... Uh, the, we've not really had many examples of you know interviewees saying terrible things and interviewers themselves being punished before you know before, before prior to a year ago. So I think what you say about cancel culture is right. But I mean, the final thing I would say on this is I don't really think it's going to come to anything. Like I mean, he, he as you say, he's got to attend. Is it something to do with like he might be arrested if he doesn't attend a police caution or something like that? Is has he got to? Yeah. What he's, right. I mean, I really don't think anything will cover this i mean there's not really that much against him but and perhaps for that reason he himself feels like he has been unfairly targeted but i think this will blow over pretty quickly if i'm honest well there's certainly a lot that we can continue to discuss on there but we do need to move on um thanks for everyone who's been commenting it's obviously quite a contentious issue and it's something that we will see how this develops over time and please continue to get involved comment throughout get involved on our twitter as well and also answer as well our question that we'll be coming back to later on in the show if you have had to self-isolate do you think your university would provide you with sufficient support there's a real debate arising on that we'll come to that shortly but let's move on now to something a lot lighter something almost vaguely political and um we've we've, we've gone from freedom of speech to talking about strictly now because um strictly come dancing back this weekend and one of the 12 contestants on taking part this year is the former Home Secretary, Jackie Smith. The now, the first female Home Secretary. Female yeah. home secretary. My, my apologies. <laughs> I, I, do you know what? I had this written down in my notes. It says, it says first female Home Sec. Indeed. How I, got, how I didn't even remember that. This is mad day. But anyway, so Jackie Smith, obviously, Ollie obviously really likes Jackie Smith. But she Big does crap. also have a reputation that was rather besmirched by the expense of this crisis and the controversy that erupted over her putting down her primary residence in London and having her home 
had what was her main home in Redditch being claimed as the second home and the expenses that come from that, almost to the point where her husband was um, claimed for pornographic films and pay-per-view TV as well as part of that. Um, Jackie Smith went on to lose her seat of Redditch in 2010, a seat that has been held by the Conservatives ever since. So now Jackie Smith is coming on to Strictly. And so I, I, I had a real thought about this because we've seen the way that TV has shaped politicians before. So obviously Strictly Come Dancing, you have the examples of Anne Widdicombe and Ed Balls, really as predecessors, two people who weren't on the show in the past. And I certainly had a completely different outlook of them after they kind of happily made fools of themselves on there. But not just Strictly, but other reality TV as well. So I, George Galloway, for example, I will never think of George Galloway the same way again from when he asked if he wanted to be the cat on Big Brother. If you have never seen that before... Don't watch it. <laughs> it was... It is the weirdest thing I have ever seen. And if, I mean, George Galloway has said a lot of controversial things. But yeah, somehow I feel that somehow eclipses it in just how weird. And, yeah, that's the worst thing he's ever done. George Galloway, <laughs> that's the worst thing that man's ever done. <laughs> Give it a watch, I assure you. And then also, um, Michael Portillo, of course, Michael Portillo, uh, former Defence Secretary under John Major, very sort of suave gentleman who is now... Um, I certainly, I, before I saw him riding trains for the first time, I didn't know that he was the defence secretary. I just knew he was this man who did trains. That was before I got into politics. And then I realised, oh, you know, he served the John Major as defence secretary. He, he, is, he has his own moments. He is ordained for that. So I want to really go on from here and start, obviously, the impact of TV, because a lot of politicians' images have been changed by that show. And I guess for me, there's kind of three characteristics you tend to get from it. That politicians, they seem more human, they seem more in touch, and generally more likeable. So, Ollie, I'm going to come to you first. Would you agree yeah. that doing things like reality TV, doing things like this, where you very much put your reputation on the line a bit, do you think that that's a good thing for a politician, that that's something that they seek to have to cultivate a better image of themselves? Yeah, I would certainly say that reality TV programmes can soften a politician's image. Like prior to them going on, I feel like a lot of people can have kind of like a, just a negative, they might not know much about them, but because they're a politician, they've got a really negative view of them. And I think that's a shame, really. So, I mean, as much as it's good that they can go on programmes like Strictly or I'm a Celebrity or whatever it is, and then after that, the, the, a lot of the public can be like, well, I didn't really know much about them before. My opinion wasn't that high, but actually now they're like a, they're like a normal person. And they've got they've got feelings themselves and they're actually quite relatable. But I mean, the fundamental point I would make about this is it's kind of a tragedy that like trust is that low in politicians that they have to go on these programmes in order to like go on our additional support from the public. So whilst it's good that, you know, they come off them usually in a better light at the same time it's just sad that in the first place you know the bar like the bar was so low like originally that they were thought of so poorly so i mean it, it's good and i think it's you know i like i like seeing it particularly like not current politicians certainly for like people who served in government and now you know they've moved on to other things but um yeah it's just it's it's interesting to see and it's quite entertaining and it, i hope it continues it's something I've watched a lot over the years, definitely. Enoch, if I can come to you now. On the same thing, Ollie made actually a very good point there. 
that there's such a mistrust in politicians. They almost have to feel that they have to go on these shows to kind of save their reputation almost. Is that something you agree with? Well, I think the great thing with politicians is going on an active TV show is very much life on easy mode for them. Whereas for most of the people going on that show, this is what my husband's doing in their lives. So if you're a politician, when you go into politics, you have a media that hates you on your back 24-7. People just people sort of pre-decide they dislike you. You're sort of like lawyers, where no one likes lawyers or real estate agents. And also you're you're basically on things that affect people's lives in a way that people these people are gonna get upset with you very easily. Whereas if you go on a reality TV show like I'm a celebrity, all you have to do is dance pretty well and be able to fall over quite a lot, and people will <laughs> like you. And the, the TV company, they're happy to spin the narrative, the redemption narrative of oh look, this person you didn't like is actually really nice, so maybe you should like them. So that gives them an extra advantage. Um, yeah, I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, no. no, I was going to say, I almost think it's like, I don't know if it's better to just kind of go with the flow and be, especially if it's something like Strictly, to be good, or actually to just be bad and make a fool of yourself because you are more often likely to get far. If Anne Widdicombe was good, I don't think she would have got, because I think she got down to like the last five in the end. And I really don't know if she was any good, if she would actually got there, just because I think she left herself open to having a bit of a laugh. Um, obviously, some countries do it very differently. And obviously, the United States, if you've ever watched the chat shows over there, the likes of Jimmy Fallon, um, Stephen Colbert, they have sitting politicians. They have sitting presidents on the shows. There's a video of President Obama going on and slow jamming the news in his last year of the presidency. And I guess really a question from that is, do you think that for if it's better for current politicians to have these TV appearances, to do these things that make them seem more lighthearted and it gets them votes whilst they're in office? Or do you think it's something that perhaps makes them seem detached from the job so it's better for former politicians who have a reputation that they've built throughout their career to maybe now try and shape it in a different way if they feel it wasn't? How they wanted. Enoch, I want to come to you first on this. Like, I guess one of the key things there, you know, so you mentioned, you know, um, Obama going on to the Daily Show and the late night. Um, is that late night talk shows in America have been very much transformed in the 20th century to more political places. Whereas, I don't know if you if you got, I don't know, Boris, you're not Boris Johnson, if Keir Starmer, let's say if Keir Starmer went on Graham Norton, I don't know if that would work out well for him. Um, <laughs> I think there is, I do think politicians could, you know, well learn to find new ways of engaging with people. Because um, I think they're not, they're not well served by the current formats. But at the same time, I don't want to see current politicians wheezing their way out, out being asked tough questions by going on light, fluffy talk shows. Well, yeah, I mean, an interesting one is over here, for example, I know a lot of prime ministers have been on this morning in the past to try and present this lighter image of themselves. That's something that hasn't always gone well philip schofield i remember had quite a tear into theresa may when he had her on but also shows that have i got news for you these politically motivated sort of panel shows where you have the likes of ian hislop and paul merton very strongly just leaving everything at the door in terms of the way they just go and question politicians on the show so do you think maybe for current politicians something like a panel show which is more geared to politics is that maybe better than something like a reality show where you're very much disconnected from politics. I think the big advantage of the politicians is that for many of them, uh, you know, I'll get this one to show it, but they are quite witty and quite, because they, they're good at giving speeches, good at talking in front of people, and they're good at thinking on their feet. And that's something that's does them really well doing a panel show. 
Whereas I think so you mentioned earlier, if Anne Willikin was good, she could have done she would have done worse strictly. If Anne Willikin was good, she wouldn't be Anne Willikin anymore. She'd be a completely different person. There's no possibility for her being good. That's so that's something that's factored in from the very beginning. Um, so yeah, I think politicians tend to do better on panel shows when it's a little bit of political engagement, but also they get a chance to express themselves in a different way. Okay, Ollie, I'm gonna ask you yeah. now the same two questions. So firstly, is sort of these TV appearances, is it better for former politicians or for current politicians? And do you think something like a panel show is better, it suits their strengths more, makes them look better than doing a reality show where you may get permanently remembered for being a cat? Um, well, on the first question, I think it depends on the programme because if it's something like I'm a Celebrity where you spend like three weeks in the Australian jungle, I'm not sure, like, I remember when Nadine Doris went on it, I'm not sure many of her constituents were best pleased that she kind of just left. I, I think she lost the whip over it. Indeed, yeah. The party. So, I mean, the fact that she kind of abandoned her constituency for a month and that kind of, I don't think that was acceptable. So I feel like for shows like that and Strictly, which kind of need like a long, what's say long term, but like, you know, it isn't just a one-off thing. That is probably better for former politicians to do but if it, if it is something like you said like a, a panel show or like graham norton or this one i mean it, it's not really it doesn't come very detrimentally to, to parliament or to one's constituents so i feel like that's fine and on the second question i think they're probably better suited to panel shows because it's more like what they're accustomed to like you see politicians that go on programs like politics live and question time and whilst they are different you know the setting is relatively similar whereas when they go on things like you know strictly it is completely different completely new so they probably are yes better suited to panel shows whether that makes it easy and that it is it's easier for them as a consequence so yeah i would agree well the yeah. thing we haven't mentioned yet was um of course tony blair in his last year he was winding up his time as prime minister and he took part in this comic relief sketch with catherine tate and we got to hear tony blair utter the words on tv am i bothered I, I don't know. I don't think it had quite an impact on Tony Blair, given the impact of his premiership. But yeah, prime ministers in comedy, that is something I would like to explore. Um, we're going to move on from this now um, to really our last point, which is, as I said, as I said last week, we're bringing the news in campus straight out of campus. I mean, so if you saw the visual transition there, that, that was almost too seamless to be true. But um, for us, what we're looking for this week, and it's a big question because obviously we've seen a lot about self-isolating students over the last week. And it goes back to the question I started off with. And we've seen a whole variety of responses from the university in terms of how students are being treated and supported whilst they're being asked to self-isolate. And of course, it's very different if you're on and off campus. So the question I asked at the start of the show, if you had to self-isolate, do you think your university would provide you with sufficient report support. We will come to comments on this as we go throughout. But Enoch, now you said you are currently self-isolating at the moment. So this question is very much a reality for yourself at the moment. What, so what do you think? Do you think, obviously, you're in a different situation. You're off campus, you're not on campus. But do you think the university would provide you with as sufficient support as is required? Nothing I've seen so far indicates the university are doing anything of the sort. They're not doing anywhere near enough to support students. And actually, I was on um, BBC commentary this morning and we were discussing the whole situation with someone on campus. And I think what we are what we are really seeing is a dereliction of duty from the university, either to create COVID safe spaces on campus or to make sure once students are put into, you know, once students are self-isolating on campus and again right treatment. I, I think the one thing I will say for Warwick is they're not doing as bad as some other places I've seen. 
Well, we'll come on to some other places in a bit. Just for a point of balance here. Um, so Warwick have said that on-campus students that they are offering help with food deliveries, including potentially going to click and collect places, picking up their food, delivering it to their halls of residence. Indeed, they're allowing food deliveries onto halls of residences. And they're also providing a laundry service for students to hand over laundry to the university and for them to take care of that. Obviously, it's no special washes. It's very basic, but the university are doing something there. Ollie, I want to come to you now with the same yeah. question. That question there, if you had to self-isolate, do you think that Warwick would provide you with sufficient support? Um, no. And I think we can just... Everything that, as you know, says everything that's kind of happened up to now, even people that aren't self isolating. I mean, you look at the fiasco surrounding like seminar registration over the past week, you know, I mean, and that's for people that aren't that, that's a basic thing that they completely anticipated was going to happen. And you know, it just kind of it, the, the system was terrible. So, I just think, given a new circumstance, something which they've got to grapple with, which they're not used to, that they wouldn't be any better. And I think, as much as you say that they're helping to deliver food to people and do people's washing, again, we're kind of negating. Um, mental the mental impact of this because as, as well as much as practical things are important you know I really feel for perhaps those freshers that are in a, a flat full of people that they don't really get on with and they don't really talk to and it's I think we're we're just no nothing has been said about you know the mental impact of self-isolating because you know with your family at home it's hard enough so you know if you're away from home and you're just living on your own for the first time it must be incredibly difficult and I've not read or seen anything which suggests that the Uni is providing much mental um, health support um, to these people. No, certainly, <laughs> university haven't been um, the most specific in terms of um, specific mental health services for no. people who have had um, COVID. Do you do you think the facilities are there, or what things should the university do potentially to bring these mental health services in for students <sighs> who need it? You know, I would like to say the facilities are there, and I'm not, you know, but I think. It's just about fundamentally, it's about making, you know, students aware because, you know, it's all and good if there are these services. I mean, no doubt they need to be improved and, you know, waiting lists and things are probably not as, as low as they should be. But I think for too many people, they don't know their first protocol and who to contact. So I think if you just kind of amplify to students, the help is probably there. And that's, you know, that would be for a lot of people that would be sufficient and they would reach out for it. So, I mean, whilst there's probably a services issue and they need to be improved as well. I mean, the first step is to just make everybody aware that the help's available. Okay, Enoch, if I can come to you now with that, with just with that same point on mental health, do you agree with Ollie that it's very much university need to work on their capacity, but also just need to make sure that people know where the services are if they are struggling right now? Well, I think, you know, as someone who used wellbeing last year, just simply last year, despite the fact the staff were absolutely lovely and absolutely doing their best, they simply weren't up on enough to handle the capacity of mental health cases they were facing. I can only imagine that's gotten worse this year. And I can also attest that last year it was impossible for me to find out anything about mental health. Um, so I can't imagine what the poor freshers are going through right now. So I think, yeah, Ollie's completely right. You must least give them more money and also give them some advertising so we actually know what's going on. Mm. It's certainly of any time, really mental health is a big concern but right now especially when your social contact is as restricted as it is by coronavirus I think it's something that really needs to have a lot of merit discussed um obviously we mentioned other universities and I guess if we were gonna put Warwick in a sort of league table compared to other universities I've got some examples of some good universities and some quite bad universities on this and 
some of the things that seem to be running quite current. So if I give examples of two good universities, so um, Edge Hill University, there's a BBC article in this picture of a lot of fresh foods, both sort of fresh meats and fresh vegetables as well, a good balanced diet and free foods being delivered to students who are self-isolating by the university. Um, I have a friend who's self-isolating in Liverpool at the moment. She told me that similar had happened there, that the university, once they had confirmed cases of coronavirus, were supplying free food to the flat. On the other hand, however, you have universities like Nottingham, and a lot has been made of the conditions in Derby Hall, one of their halls of residence there, where the students have been having late food deliveries, they've been having insufficient food given to them, but they've also been basically told by campus security that they'll be given a £150 fine if they even step out to the point where parents have literally come and picked their children up and taken them back home because the conditions are that bad. A couple of other universities, so Lancaster was quite heavily criticised. So they were selling a daily food packet of £17.95 for what was later found out to basically be £3 worth of food. And similarly, uh, the University of East Anglia, they were heavily criticised for charging students £252 for two weeks worth of food they then eventually reduced it to 168 but that's still 84 pounds a week it costs less to live in whitefields per week than it does to get that food delivery sorry if, of course you live in whitefields I've, I've never actually been in whitefields but i was I, I imagine it's really nice but um on that point what where where does work fit in with that what do you think are the traits of the universities like edge hill and liverpool that are doing better and the traits of the universities, the likes of Nottingham, Lancaster and UEA that are doing worse in supporting students. So, Ollie, I'll come to you first on that point. Um, well, I think it's quite a simple answer in the sense that the universities that are doing better have probably put more thought into it than those that aren't. I mean, the annoying thing is, like, when Term 3 ended, what was it? And, like, well, Term 3 didn't go ahead. I mean, most students have returned home by March. So, I mean... As much as, for example, Warwick had to kind of grapple with the issues of, you know, allowing first years to go and collect the rest of their belongings. Once I'd kind of finished and everyone was off campus, which was by early summer, they had until the end of September to plan. So clearly the universities that are doing better, I just imagine that they've they've planned more for it. And, and the ones that, you know, are performing badly, you just have to ask the question, well, you did see this coming. You, you know, you, you accepted however many thousand freshers. So, I mean, if you're willing to do that, then you must, you should have, you know, put more thought into the logistics of how you're going to help them if what has now come to fruition of the second wave happens. I mean, maybe for some universities, they just really didn't expect a second wave. Maybe they thought things were just going to continue to, you know, decrease. But I mean, that is just very, very risky. And as we've seen, a lot of students have suffered as a result. Do you think it's a money incentive that universities are trying to make money from this? Because certainly from my, from my personal experience, I can say I spend... 20 to 25 pounds a week at Aldi and then say another 20 pound maybe on foods that I buy out throughout yeah. the week and that that is still half the price of what is currently at UEA per week and even that's when they produced it by quite a drastic amount so do you think that that there is a profit incentive that universities here are taking advantage of students in this case or do you think it's actually the cost of putting the package together and whilst they obviously may be purchasing the food at a cheap price, it counters in the fact you obviously have to pay staff to produce the food, you have to pay for distribution. 
Yeah, I mean, the, I feel like there must be some profit incentive involved. Otherwise, I mean, as much as they want to help students, you know, I mean, they wouldn't be willing to. I don't think they would be willing to roll out on a big scale if there was wasn't some sort of profit motive. So yeah, probably yes, but it is astronomical. I mean, the figures they were charged because you just said that was like even when you buy food out as well, that doesn't even come to half of what these universities are charging students. So yeah. There probably is some profit incentive involved and it is wrong because the students it's not like they're refusing to go out they're being told they can't so if you're going to then go and tell someone oh you can't actually do this and only and then give them that as an option it, it is really unjust okay Ina, come to you next on that point i guess on that point of cost there's a sort of basic economics of supply and demand here but well the demand is there students will always be demanding food but they've only got one source of supply and the resource is so scarce that we can justify putting these prices up because it's the only thing students have got. I mean, at least Warwick are allowing deliveries to from supermarkets and from takeouts as well to go to students. So do you think in these other universities that it's a profit incentive that's meaning that things like supermarket deliveries are being rejected because the university sees an opportunity here? Or do you think it's generally something that they see as safer, even if it does mean, well, the price is higher? I think it's a combination of profit motive and just pure stupidity. I think because I think that's what it really does come down to. It's just absolutely stupid. Because if you are, because I mean, only honestly, it's you know, as it is, it's unjust to be like, well, we have to self isolate, but then you have to self isolate, and we're the only source of food. We're going to ridiculous amounts of money for it. Because what you're doing is you're creating a carrot and a stick approach where it's only a stick, right? No one's going to want to come forward and say, actually, I think I may have got COVID nineteen, need to get tested, and it's what I need to isolate. If they know they can't isolate safely, there's access to food that's affordable. It's just absolutely unrealistic. So you guys are hurting their own ability to handle this mass pandemic out of greed. It's insane. So what sort of, just one last thing, what sort of carrots then per se do you think that um, stu students should be offered by these universities? I, I think honestly, really just has come down to you make sure you can get food safely and easily. That is really... All, all people really need to know is that they can be safe, and that's it. And that will be enough for them to come forward. Okay, well, certainly it's that whole point of safety is really dominating a lot of the discourse in a lot of different topics, not just on self-isolation at universities at the moment. But that is all we've got time for on today's show. Thank you so much for watching and for commenting throughout. It's been really good to have so much engagement as we go on throughout the show. Um, as I said, this live stream will be uploaded onto all of our audio accounts, onto our Mixcloud and our Spotify Saturday five o'clock we'll be back same time wednesday 1 p.m next week with a completely different set of topics and a completely different set of news to discuss in 60 seconds and much more thank you very much for watching this week